This episode of Voice of the Victim podcast is supported by Best Fiends. You know, we talk about a lot of difficult topics on our show, and it can be really mentally exhausting. But we found a great new way to get our minds into a better place while giving our brains a workout. It's the fascinating puzzle game called Best Fiends. I think it's really engaging, and I'm not usually a fan of puzzle games, but Best Fiends stands out to me because it's story-based and kind of feels like there's a purpose to what you're doing, making it more enjoyable. So Rosie is doing a lot better <laughs> in this game than I am. Yeah, what level are you on again, Ryan? 37. That's so interesting, because I'm on 224. How? <laughs> I love this game because I literally will do it on my downtime. And even if I'm super busy, I can just pick up exactly where I left off whenever I do have time. And I even have a ton of little fun bugs. They're all mine. So who are your favorite fiends? Um, totally Pop. I don't even know what he is, but he's purple. He's got little pink wigglies. <laughs> and I also like Bob, who's a angry looking ladybug. And I also like Vincent. It's interesting that you say you don't know who that one is, because isn't there a button you can press to learn more about the bug? Oh, he's an axolotl. I don't know how to say it. What is it? An axolotl. He's like a little underwater amphibian creature thing. So yeah, I think it's super much fun. Even though I don't play for a day or two, I still get my daily reward once I pop back in. I can save little baby bug slugs and then feed them carrots. It's a good time. <laughs> it's super easy to squeeze it in. Even if you're busy, just those little bits of time you have between other projects you're working on. And you don't need to be connected to the internet to play the game. So it's perfect for long airplane rides <sighs> to make them feel shorter, which... Is we coming have, up soon. I just realized that. I didn't even think of it before. And on top of all this, it's very nice to look at. It's bright colors, cute characters, and it never gets old because they update the game every month mm -hmm. with new levels and events, which you're going to need a lot sooner than I am. <laughs> yes, I am. So engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Best Fiends. Thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. My name is Ryan. And I am Rosie. And when you're listening to this, we are disconnected from the internet. We are in the airplane. Maybe. No, we'll actually be on a cruise ship when this... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm already disconnected. <laughs> so... We are recording this very much ahead of time, so if we're you can't get a hold of us right pirates. now, we're on a cruise ship. Yep. Anyway, this week we're beginning our deep dive into one of the biggest, if not the biggest, story of 2019, and you've all heard of it, but we're not going to tell the story of Jeff Jeffrey Epstein here. Who was that? Jeps? <laughs> I can't talk. We're going to instead take one victim at a time that has come forward about their experience with Jeffrey Epstein and tell their stories. So if you want to hear our coverage of Epstein's life from birth until 1995, we will be sharing that on Patreon, but in our main feed, we want to be the voice of the victim. So who are we talking about tonight, Rosie? Tonight, we are sharing the story of Maria Farmer and her little sister, Annie. But first... We need to address an important detail from last week. We really messed up, Rosie. <laughs> Devastated. <laughs> we did not do our due diligence 
and we completely glossed over what hurling is. Before we move on, we need to correct that. So, Rosie, what is hurling? Hurling is an Irish team game of Gaelic origin with lots of similarities to soccer. It's played on a field with goals, and players use a wooden stick called a hurl to hit a small ball called a... Sliatar? Probably should have done our due diligence, Ryan, figuring out what that word is. The goal is a net guarded by a goalie, but it has a crossbar in it. If you hit the ball over the crossbar, then you get one point. But if you hit it under the bar where the goalie is, then you get three points. Thank you, Wikipedia. So hopefully that cleared up any confusion we caused last week by ignoring hurling. (laughs) And now I can rest easy. (laughs) Yes, now we can both sleep at night. So thank you for calling us out, Sabrina. And we will try to be better in the future. Yes. We have one more update from last week before we start. Jason Corbett's daughter, Sarah Corbett Lynch, she's a very artistic girl. And we want to thank Kate from Cary, Ireland for sharing that with us and letting us know also that country music is massive in Ireland. Is that where Cary Gold Butter comes from? I asked her that. And yes, it is. No way. You actually asked. I That's did. hilarious. Big fan of Cary Gold. And country music is massive in Ireland. Wow. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, Sarah, the daughter of Jason, who we talked about last week mm-hmm. or two weeks ago, she's an uh, right author. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word. So, Rosie, do you want to tell us about Sarah's book a little bit? Yeah. So, Sarah's book is called Noodle Loses Dad. On her website, sarahcorbettlynch.com, it describes the book as a collection of self-affirming stories exploring loss, grief, moving from home, blended families through her characters, amidst a myriad of complex challenges faced by someone so young. Sarah hopes that despite great suffering, she can help other children find the courage to be themselves. Sarah hopes her books inspire and help other children to process their own challenges and to find hope and happiness again like she did. Yeah, so I think this is really cool. We have a copy of the book on the way, and we're thinking about getting more to use for giveaways, maybe. Um, We think it's a good way to help support someone who is directly affected by one of the horrible crimes we've discussed on the show. And we're still trying to decide how we'll structure a giveaway, but let us know if you have any ideas for us. We would appreciate the help. Also, both Sarah and her brother Jack are singers like their dad, and they post videos to their YouTube channels, Sarah Corbett Lynch and Jack Corbett Lynch. So if you're Mm -hmm. interested in that, go check that out. And also their aunt, Tracy Lynch, and now their adoptive mother, has written a book, which we referenced a bit last week, but that's called My Brother Jason, Mm -hmm. and we have a copy of that as well. So definitely go check all that out and show support to the victims of this tragedy. So now... On to the topic of the week, Maria Farmer. Both ABC and Wondery did fantastic serial podcasts about these cases and Epstein, and both did great investigative journalism, so they are both great sources for wrapping our heads around what happened here. Mm -hmm. So this week we're talking about Maria. Maria Farmer was born to Frank and Janice Farmer in 1970. She had two younger sisters, and one of them was named Annie. When Maria was still young enough to sleep in a crib, her mother noticed that she was really naturally artistic. She would sit in her crib and color pictures. And when she was just two, her mother was actually able to recognize different characters Maria was drawing. I cannot believe that as a two-year-old, her mom could actually tell what she was drawing. That's crazy. Yeah, remember in the office when Pam was trying to convince her coworkers (laughs) that Cece drew those pictures? Mm -hmm. They weren't buying it. And it's not common for young children to be so naturally gifted like this. Maria's mother was impressed with her daughter's natural talent. And when she was three years old, she bought her an easel and set her up with her own space to practice her art. When Maria was five years old, her family took a trip to New York City. She was really inspired by the culture she saw. A few years later, when she was eight, she wrote in her journal that she wanted to move to New York to study painting. In 1993, she learned about a graduate school program to study art in New York, which she then told her friends and family that she'd gotten into so they wouldn't worry about her. With just $14 to her name, she moved to New York City. 
Yeah, so she told her family that she got into the school, but she actually oh, just my goodness. went to New York. Pretty daring. That's crazy. She found multiple jobs to support herself while she found a way to accomplish her goals. She was able to get an apartment on Barrow Street in Greenwich Village. So this is on the east side of Manhattan, just a few blocks north of the Holland Tunnel, which goes to New Jersey. So there's a lot of cool red brick apartments there. If you look it up on Google Maps, you can see the street view. It's a nice neighborhood. She's gutsy. I mean, you have a you have to have a lot of spunk to go somewhere with fourteen dollars. Yeah, or just go to New York City by yourself in general. That sounds terrifying. Wow, impressed. Maria put a lot of effort into getting out there and spending time at art museums, learning from other great painters with a lot more experience. She did whatever she could to improve her craft. And I really respect that. It's easy to dream and imagine all the things we want to accomplish. It's really hard to make this huge step, like moving to the most expensive city ever. <laughs> Literally. Do you, do you remember how I met your mother? A little bit. It kind of reminds me of Lily from How I Met Your Mother. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Even though she didn't actually have a scholarship when she moved to New York, she did eventually get it. So she was able to train at the New York Academy of Art. So Good she's, for her. Yes, she's very talented, extremely dedicated to her craft, which helped her make all this happen. She would typically spend like 12 hours a day painting on top of working multiple side jobs. But like we said, New York City is very expensive, and she still struggled to stay above water for a while, mm-hmm. even, she was, even though she was working like around the clock. But through her dedication, she was able to start making money off of her paintings. She started displaying them in art shows and sold her paintings for up to $20,000. That's That's, making it. Yeah. So her dreams were finally starting to come true. When she was 25 in May of 1995. Oh, I was one at that time. Wow. Side point. (laughs) And I was four. Wait, I was three. This is the month of my fourth birthday. (laughs) I was not yet one. Okay, not even important. Moving on. (laughs) When she was 25 in May of 1995, the New York Academy of Art hosted an art art show, which was huge for Maria's career. She prepared for this show for a whole year, working on specific paintings based on the novel Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. Yeah, there were three specific paintings. And it was a great success for her. On opening night, All three of the paintings sold. And one of the paintings sold to a Hollywood director. That's a pretty big deal, I'd say. And the other two sold to a man from Germany. They paid $12,000 for each one. Wow. So, pretty good. I mean, I think she really earned this because she did take a lot of risk to get to where she was and invested a lot of blood, sweat, and tears trying to make this all happen. So she really earned where she was at age 25, being able to make $36,000 in one night off a painting. That's like a year's salary for some people. Yeah, that's That's pretty amazing. really amazing. That night, Maria was introduced to two people who are known as important patrons in the art world. People that are a rising artist like Maria would benefit a lot from knowing them. Maria described the man as having gray hair and looking very distinguished. He came across as very knowledgeable and always sporting a smirk that seemed to say, I know something you don't know. Oh, we all know that kind of person. (laughs) But he wasn't rude or intimidating and more like charming and mysterious. So this man, if you haven't guessed yet, was Jeffrey Epstein. And the woman who was with him was Ghislaine Maxwell. He was very charismatic, which is a part of why Jeffrey Epstein was so dangerous. Mm -hmm. When Maria met him, he shook her hand and told her that she was very talented, and he loved her paintings. Being such an important patron and influential person in the art buying world, there was a lot that this man could offer Maria in her growing career. But he had a stipulation. He wanted to buy one of her paintings that had already been sold at a discount. <laughs> but he implied that this sale would come with many future benefits. Yeah, and 
So he wanted to buy her painting at half price, so she'd be losing $6,000. And it was already sold. Yeah, but we can understand how appealing this would be to an artist who's just starting to find success if this person's offering to help you find future opportunities, you know, Mm -hmm. and looking to grow into something that will sustain you for life, you know. I mean, who you know is always very important to finding opportunities to grow, you know. The woman that was with Jeffrey, how do you pronounce her name one more time? Ghislaine Maxwell. Ghislaine. I've heard it also pronounced Galan, but I'm just going to say Ghislaine because we live in Minnesota. Okay. Well, Ghislaine Maxwell, who was the woman with Jeffrey, was a very plain-looking woman, but still came across as very charming with a royal-sounding English accent. And the painting that Jeffrey was drawn to um, buying from Maria was very interesting. Back then, Maria was fascinated with a voyeuristic painting style. The particular painting Jeffrey bought was a background of a woman on a couch, and in the foreground was the outline of a man wearing nothing but white boxers watching the woman from the shadows. Yeah, and a lot of true crime listeners will understand this fascination. You know, a lot of true crime listeners are interested in these oddities and curious things. But with Epstein, it's kind of foreshadowing, and we see where those interests blossom into something much more harmful. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of sickening. Shortly after this art show, Maria got a call from Jeffrey offering her a job. He asked her to meet him at the office the next morning, where he explained the details of the job. And this is exciting for Maria, because it's this new opportunity. He's telling her that it would be another step in the right direction to further her career. So she met Jeffrey at his office in 40, or 457 Madison Avenue, in a historic stone building just across the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral. Very regal location which would have been really cool pulling up to that place. And this is my new job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When she got to the office, she saw many employees in a busy workplace, answering phones and typing. Everyone was in a good mood and knew Maria's name before she even met them. So it seems like a really friendly workplace where they make you feel valued. But despite the professional appearance of the office, Jeffrey came out to meet Maria wearing sweatpants and a button-down shirt. He was a lot more casual than she'd expected. He told her about a job where she would work acquiring art for him and finding the best deals she could. And she was excited about this because she thought about her artist friends that she'd be able to help out with this while also during doing her job for Jeffrey and working with art. So she took it. Jeffrey seemed like a very friendly boss, easily accessible to the employees and eager to work with them to make their jobs as easy as possible. Maria's mom, Janice, called to talk to Jeffrey about her daughter. And it was just like a (laughs) typical mom checkup kind of thing, you know? Jeffrey told her how happy he was with the work that she was doing. He was excited about her talents and to be able to help her with her career. He came across as generous and charitable, as well as helpful to others. But on the third day that Maria worked for Epstein... She remembers an incident that foreshadowed his character. She had acquired a piece of art from one of her friends, who was literally a starving artist, and very much in need of the money. But several days after getting the piece, Jeffrey still hadn't paid for it. And this made Maria worry about the artist, because he literally had no food. And he had the money, so what? This is confusing. Yeah. This type of thing happened several times as Maria worked for Epstein, and she got to the point where she was just done with this job and she planned to quit. So she called him and told him that she was quitting because the artists weren't getting paid, but he protested and begged her to stay. He told her he had a new idea to make her job more enjoyable. And so he offered her a new job, acting as if he was doing her this huge favor and said she wouldn't even really need to work in this new position, and all she would need to do is be the receptionist at the front door of his home. But wait a second. His idea of fixing it wasn't even to pay the people that he got the art from? It was just to switch it up for her? Yeah, that's that's how it seems. Shady. Hopefully the artist did get paid. 
So shady. Well, Jeffrey's home was at 9 East 71st Street in Manhattan, and it, let me tell you, was a mansion. It was seven stories tall and valued at $77 million. It was known as the largest private residence on the island of Manhattan. And this is the mansion that we've heard a lot about in the news. Okay. This is it. Mm-hmm. So Maria started working there as a receptionist of this home, signing in, to vis- signing in visitors. And we already mentioned this, but this place was huge. Maria said that when you walk through the front doors, there was this really long hallway, probably like 2,000 square feet of just hallway, <laughs> what? leading to the desk where she sat. What? So, That's- yeah, huge. Like the whole bottom floor almost seems like an entryway to the house. Wow. Very interesting. Everyone who visited the home had to sign in on the ledger. On the first day she worked there, he gave her a tour of the house. On the tour, he was excited to ask her to look closely at the limestone walls of the home. He pointed out little pinholes in the wall, which contained microscopic cameras. And he made sure she knew that he'd be able to watch her. Which... I guess it's fair if you're at work, but something really odd is that he showed her the hidden control room with all the monitors for the cameras, and she noticed that even the bathroom, including the toilet and shower, had cameras, and they were on the monitors in the control room. What? So, there was no privacy for anyone in this place. Not what you want your workplace to be like. Mm-hmm. Like... Can you imagine being at work and having being on camera while you're on the toilet? Um, no, I I wouldn't work there. That would be terrible. She asked why he had this set up, and he told her that he just records everything and keeps it. At that point, Maria resolved that she would not be using the bathroom at work. Smart. But keep these cameras in mind in the future of this case when we talk about more high-profile possible conspirators and blackmail. But that's a few episodes away. As Maria continued to work for Epstein, she realized that she never really saw him working. She flat out asked him what he did all day. This is when he told her that he gets three massages every day. (laughs) That's just, like, so unnecessary. (laughs) I don't know. It makes me laugh. Sounds pretty good to me. but (laughs) Yeah, but is it even that great if you're getting three a day? You'd get sick of it. Yeah. And he then said that he would work on the phone during his massages, which, again, wouldn't that make it even less enjoyable? Mm -hmm. Strange world. He said he was a financial manager for Les Wexner. She thought it was odd that he had only one client, but Epstein told her that Wexner was the only client he needed. Again, we'll be sharing the details of Epstein and Wexner's relationship over on Patreon, where we'll tell the story of Epstein's rise and how he became who he was. Long story short, Lex, Les Wexner was the billionaire owner of many retail brands. Yes. Wexner currently owns Victoria's Secret, Bath and Body Works, the White Barn Candle Company, personal favorite, La Senza, <laughs> and Henry Bendel. I think it's Henri Bendel. Oh. But... I don't know that one. I'm not aware of that one. We're just a couple kids from Minnesota. Just relax. <laughs> Other companies have spun off of him, like Abercrombie and Fitch and Lane Bryant. Although she had many questions about Jeffrey Epstein, Maria continued to work for him because she needed the money. But one day, she saw a young girl come downstairs bawling. So Maria was wondering what the heck happened to this girl when she was upstairs. And she asked Elaine why this girl was so upset. Ghislaine just told her that she was upset because the girl didn't get the modeling job. And at this point, Maria was like, what What modeling job? This is when Ghislaine told Maria that she and Jeffrey were modeling scouts for Victoria's Secret. Every day, young girls would show up to Jeffrey's home, sign in with Maria, and then go upstairs. On a typical day, between three and eight girls would visit the home. As she continued to work there... Ghislaine Maxwell became more and more friendly with her, and they were becoming like a little family. One day, while Ghislaine was standing behind Maria and playing with her hair, she asked Maria about her family. Is it just me, or is it a little odd for someone to play with their employee's hair? 
it's extremely strange. <laughs> okay, good. Unless they're children, which my children do. <laughs> <laughs> Maria started telling Ghislaine about her little sister, Annie. Ghislaine was very inquisitive and interested, and Maria was happy to brag about how much she loved her sister. One day, while Jeffrey was around, she showed them a picture of Annie. And after seeing this photo, Jeffrey offered to pay for Annie to come visit and see what her big sister did in the Big Apple. And he implied that he wanted to help her get into a good college. So... Hmm. Yeah, I guess take that as you will, and let's keep going. Figuring it would be a really cool experience for 16-year-old Annie, Maria loved this idea and was excited to see her sister, whom she hadn't seen in a year. But their mother Janice was a bit wary of this offer at first. Annie was still young, and this was a big trip to make on her own. But after speaking to Jeffrey, she felt that he and Galene... Galene. Oh, dang it. Sorry. (laughs) He and Ghislaine, who came across as a loving and philanthropic? Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I've ever said that word before in my life. (laughs) Basically just means trying to help people. Okay. They were a loving and philanthropic couple, and they would just be a good influence on her. In late December of 1995, just after Christmas, seven months after Maria met Epstein... Her sister Annie was on a plane to New York City to come and visit her. Which was a huge experience for Annie, and she was really excited. Mm -hmm. When she got there, she met up with her sister, and they had a blast. Maria helped her explore NYC, and they went to theater shows on Broadway and visited flea markets. Epstein arranged for a town car to take them to see The Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. That's really cool. And... When I mean, when you've never been to New York City before, especially as a kid, it's such an interesting culture to experience. So cool. Mm-hmm. I remember riding through Manhattan in a bus oh when gosh. I was 11, year old, 11 years old <laughs> and counting all the McDonald's I saw. That is I, really sad. <laughs> I, <laughs> I couldn't believe how many there were in such a short distance. <laughs> Oh, boy. But, yeah, it is kind of sad that that's what I remember. That, that? Anyway, <laughs> this appeared to be a great opportunity for Annie. When Annie met Epstein, she was surprised to see how casually he was dressed. She heard that he was this big, influential financer and expected him to be wearing suits all the time. But he was always in sweatpants. So, Maria and Annie, they had a nickname for Jeffrey called old Fonzie, which is funny because Epstein does kind of look like Henry Winkler. (laughs) I guess you're right. Epstein told Annie that he'd love to help her with her education and make it possible for her to go on international trips that would look good on college applications. And Annie was really grateful for these opportunities. Again, Epstein was good at putting people at ease and coming across as charming. One night, Jeffrey offered to take Maria and Annie to see a movie with him. They went to see a movie that was called 12 Monkeys. I've never heard of it, but it's from 1995. When they got to the theater seats, Jeffrey sat between Maria and Annie. And this came across as odd. Yes. They just went along with it. Eventually, Annie went back home. And six months later, in the summer of 1996, an exciting new opportunity arose for Maria. She was asked to provide artwork for a feature film. She couldn't pass this up, being the thing she really wanted to do with her life. So again, she talked to Epstein to let him know that she was quitting. But Epstein was like, no, 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 please don't quit. I'm so sorry you're unhappy with this. We'll figure something out. I want you to be happy. Hmm. So very much wanted to keep her around. So he offered her a new job where he'd pay her to paint full-time. She'd be able to live at his home in Ohio and spend her days working on her art. Which would have been a tough decision, because she specifically wanted to paint in New York City, and she had a boyfriend in New York. But at the same time, here was a full-time job doing what she loved. But what an odd job. Like, it's great, but strange that he wants to pay her full-time to paint in his home. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It seems weird to me. 
I'd take it if I got a full-time job doing one of my favorite hobbies. Yeah, Yeah, but it's just weird. I know. In hindsight, it's very weird. But, I mean, I can understand why it was appealing to her. Mm -hmm. So... The Ohio home was near Les Wexner's massive estate in Ohio, in the town of New Albany, a town Wexner basically built into a classy, upscale neighborhood. And we're going to talk more about that on Patreon. Epstein said he'd provide the place to live and all the supplies that she'd need. He told her she'd have more time to relax and be able to enjoy outdoor time and eat food from classy country clubs. Yeah, so we really sweetened the deal and made it sound like an amazing gig so she finally agreed the home was another gigantic 10,000 square foot mansion but upon arrival at the mansion she was greeted by one of the members of Wexner's security who told her that armed security with dogs patrolled the property and that if she wanted to go outside she'd have to ask him or Lex Wexner's wife Abigail for permission so well that sounds like prison now yeah so that's not what she was expecting when she accepted this offer but maria tried to make the best of it shortly after maria moved in abigail called to thank maria for taking the job and said that her and les were huge supporters of the arts so that made maria feel a little better but life in this home was not what epstein made it sound like she felt isolated and controlled while she was there She felt like a prisoner and lost the spark and inspiration she once had for the arts. Yeah, this place was just not as inspiring as New York City. It was lonely and boring. After Maria had been there for a while, Jeffrey and Ghislaine... Is that how we say it again? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Ghislaine had come out to Ohio to visit. While they were staying in the house with her, Maria was in her room and Ghislaine knocked on her door and told her that they needed her for a minute. So Maria followed Ghislaine. As they walked down the hall, Maria realized that Ghislaine was in a robe, and she thought that was strange. Mm Mm-hmm. But I guess this is kind of like a vacation home for them, so maybe they're just trying to be as comfortable as possible? Well, Ghislaine led Maria to a bedroom, and on the bed, Jeffrey Epstein was laying, wearing nothing but boxers and socks. Uh Uh-oh. Then he asked her to rub his feet. Maria had spent over a year with these people, and nothing like this had ever happened. She thought that she could trust them. She told them that she wasn't very good at giving foot massages, trying to get them to let her go back to her room. Jeffrey asked her to sit down next to him, and she did. Then Ghislaine sat down on the other side of her. So, Maria's sitting on the bed, with Jeffrey on one side and Ghislaine on the other, And she's really uncomfortable already. But now I want to warn you, if you're sensitive, it's going to get a little crazy. Um, They did something she could have never expected. Both of them began to violently molest her. They were trying to pull her clothes off, but they weren't able to. Maria felt trapped and started to panic and cry. Ghislaine kept telling her, It's okay trying to comfort their victim. But Maria fought to get away and ran out of the room. After the encounter, she had marks and bruises. Ghislaine ran after Maria, but when she got back to her room, she shut the door and barricaded it with large furniture. That night, Maria was terrified and couldn't sleep. Can you imagine that? You're trapped in this house in a state where you don't know anybody, and... There's armed security and patrol dogs outside, and the people who own it just tried to rape you. This is a terrifying situation, and she probably felt like she wouldn't make it out alive at this point. Yeah, like, with all the security and the dogs, you'd completely feel like a hostage. All all of her power was taken away from her. Well, Maria stayed in her room all night. And when she came out the next day, Jeffrey and Ghislaine had left to return to New York. Later on, she got a call from Epstein, where he apologized profusely and offered to give her anything to make it up to her. But this just infuriated Maria, and she hung up on him. There was no amount of money that could make this okay for Maria. She was their employee, and they abused their power over her to take advantage of her sexually. They tried to rape her, and she was fed up with them. 
She knew that she needed to leave. She started to pack up, and while she was packing, she noticed something was missing. She had brought three photographs of her and her two younger sisters. In the photographs, she and her sisters were nude. She planned to use them as inspiration for her paintings, but when she was packing up, she realized they were gone. This makes sense to her now, because she realized that these people were disgusting perverts, but there was nothing she could do about it at this point, and her focus was on getting out of that house. But it's obvious that Epstein had stolen these photos to add to his collection, which would later be discovered when his New York mansion was raided. But we'll talk more about that in another episode. So Maria finished up packing and went to leave the house, but one of Wexner's security guards blocked her from leaving the property. How could they be okay with literally helping Epstein imprison this girl? I don't understand that. Right. So Maria called her mom for help, but Janice was in Germany at the time and told Maria to call her father. When he heard what was going on, he drove from his home in Kentucky all the way to the mansion in Ohio to pick her up. Which was at least a four to five hour drive, so Maria was being held by the security there for a pretty long time. And if I were her, I would have been so terrified that I would not be able to leave this place. First of all, good dad for leaving everything and trying to go get her. Well, you got to. Mm -hmm. And second of all, like, what were the security telling her? Like, what were their reasons, you know? Just so interesting. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, finally, the security allowed her to leave. And after this, she wanted nothing to do with Jeffrey Epstein or Ghislaine Maxwell. After Maria left the Ohio mansion, all she could think about was her little sister. She needed to know that Annie was safe. So she called her up, and Annie was in Thailand. Epstein had followed through on his promise and sent Annie on a trip to study abroad. During that call, Maria learned that Annie had more contact with Jeffrey after she'd left New York. Annie was a very good, hardworking student and really wanted to go to an Ivy League school and get the best education she could. Once Annie got home from Ohio, Jeffrey called up Annie's mom, Janice, to remind her that he wanted to help out with her schooling. And at this point, they just saw Epstein as Maria's boss. They had no idea what Maria had gone through. Jeffrey told Janice that he believed it would be helpful to Annie's future if she went on an international trip to study abroad. He said he was sending a group of students on this trip and that it would be a great opportunity for Annie. He invited Annie to come meet up with the rest of the group at his ranch in New Mexico. He called it the Zorro Ranch. And at this point, Janice assumed Jeffrey and Ghislaine were married, and they were just a very generous couple who wanted to help. In the spring of 1996, Annie took a flight out to Santa Fe, New Mexico. At the airport, she found a man holding a sign with her name on it. She arrived at Epstein's ranch, which only had a few modest structures because his mansion was still under construction. Epstein had told her that there was going to be a group of students meeting here to discuss the trip, but she was the only student there, so she thought maybe she was just the first to arrive or something. Thought it was odd, but shrugged it off. Yeah, Annie reasoned with herself that she must have just misunderstood the plan and that they just wanted to interview her personally at the time. So she made the best of it. Having Ghislaine there made Annie more comfortable with the situation, and she would take Annie shopping and let her get whatever she wanted. They asked her to pick out a pair of cowboy boots to remember her trip by, and she remembers that they were over $100, which really impressed Annie. They bought them for her like it was nothing. Now remember, Annie had no idea about the experience Maria had with Ghislaine. She just remembered the weird incident from the movie theater in New York. Shortly after arriving, things took a turn for the worst. Ghislaine casually mentioned to Annie that she needed to learn how to give good foot massages for Jeffrey. So what does that have to do with going to college? Then Ghislaine had her sit next to her on the floor in front of Jeffrey. Ghislaine took one foot and had Annie take the other. Then she went on to demonstrate to Annie how Jeffrey liked his feet rubbed. Ugh, that's disgusting. I would not want to touch a stranger's feet. I don't even like touching your feet. (laughs) Noted. 
This wasn't what Annie expected, but the couple had a silly and playful demeanor that put her at ease, while still pushing the boundaries a bit. And it left Annie wondering if they were actually crossing a line, but she did feel uncomfortable. They were good at playing off inappropriate behavior as it's no big deal. So, obviously, this isn't right, but, you know, Annie wasn't sure what to do about it. Shortly after that, the three of them went to a movie theater again. While they were in the lobby, Jeffrey and Ghislaine were play wrestling, and at one point, she started pulling his pants down and almost exposed him. In public. Annie thought this was really odd because they were in public, but shrugged it off because they were just a couple in love playing around. But then, when they sat down in the theater, Jeffrey sat by Annie again, just like in New York. And again, he started holding her hand during the movie. He even rubbed her leg and touched her foot. But there was a difference this time. Uh, In New York, he was obviously trying to hide it because when Maria would look over, he would pull his hand away. But with Ghislaine, he didn't care if she saw. And even more surprising to Annie, Ghislaine didn't care that he was holding Annie's hand. And this is when Annie realized that they weren't the playfully in love couple she thought they were. Annie didn't know what to do and she felt sick to her stomach, but she waited for it to be over because she had nowhere to run and these were the only two people that she knew in this whole state. Another day, Ghislaine told Annie that she wanted to give her a massage. Again, Annie thought it was really odd, but Because it was just Ghislaine, she was like, well, okay. Yeah, Annie said that when the couple would offer things like this, they'd try so hard to present it as this great opportunity that she just couldn't refuse. Ghislaine had Annie come into a room with a massage table and a sheet on top of it. She asked Annie to get undressed and then lay under the sheet face down. Ghislaine started to massage, but Annie had a weird feeling. She felt the draft in the room and could tell that the door was still open. She felt like she was being watched. Eventually, she asked Annie to turn over and laid the blanket back on top of her. But at some point after Annie had turned on her back, Ghislaine pulled the sheet down and exposed Annie's chest. Ghislaine started rubbing her around her breasts but never touched them, making Annie feel weird and again making her wonder if Ghislaine was crossing a line. Annie was panicking in her mind, because with every passing second, she felt more and more like Jeffrey was watching the whole thing. Yeah, she had this creepy sense about him already because of the weird hand-holding and rubbing, and since she saw that Ghislaine obviously didn't care about that, she couldn't help feeling that Ghislaine was probably helping him and letting him watch the massage. Either way, an adult lady should not be giving a minor a nude massage. She was only 16 years old at this point. Again, all Annie could do was wait for it to be over. She was stuck in there in the house in the middle of nowhere. She had a sense of loneliness and helplessness. And the couple made her feel that there was just as much threat in leaving as there was in staying. They were her only way out. And this is such a scary tactic they were using. They completely take the power away from their victims by isolating them in the middle of nowhere. The morning after the massage, Annie was laying in bed when another strange thing happened. Jeffrey came into her room acting goofy and asked if she wanted to cuddle. Before she could answer, he crawled into the bed with her and cuddled. Annie was really uncomfortable and told him that she needed to use the bathroom. She waited for a while, hoping that he would leave her room. After this incident, the couple left her alone for the rest of her time on the ranch. But when she returned home, she still felt weird. When her mother asked her how the trip was, she was really quiet and didn't want to talk about it. Annie didn't want to admit to herself that she was taken advantage of. She told her mom, I'm not going to let this ruin my life. Her mom respected her wishes not to talk about it. Annie was embarrassed and saw it as very personal. She didn't want to ruin Maria's career by sharing this. She ended up going on a trip abroad to Thailand after Jeffrey paid for it. So during this trip, she felt so conflicted because she was holding in this pain, but she wanted to make the best of the opportunity, and she felt that bringing it up would be selfish. But thankfully, she was finally able to let it out to Maria when she got that call. Once she returned to New York, she got a threatening phone call from Ghislaine. 
telling her that all her art had been burned and that they will burn anything she ever makes. That's quite a threat for an artist like her. Yeah. So Maria says that Ghislaine told her, I know you like to go running on the West Side Highway, but be careful. You can get killed a lot of ways on the West Side Highway. What the heck? And she didn't even do anything. She hasn't even gone to the cops or anything. She just wants to leave. Mm-hmm. And Maria was afraid to reach out to the police because of these threats, and she felt her story sounded ridiculous. But despite that, she did decide that she would call the police. Good for her not being scared away from it. Yeah, these people, I mean, on one hand, these people deserve to be held accountable for attempting to rape this woman, and they're threatening to hurt her. But on the other hand, it's pretty important to report stuff like this because um, as difficult as it is, you're helping future victims, you know? Mm -hmm. And so she did the right thing here, even though it was really scary. And Maria says they even had a key to her apartment. What? Yeah. Well, why? I mean, I understand that these things take a lot of time. There's a lot of manipulation, so we really shouldn't be shocked that they yeah. had a key. Because but, while she worked there, yeah. over a year, they became like a little family. It's crazy stuff. Maria filed the first known police report against Jeffrey Epstein at the 6th precinct of NYC. Precinct. <laughs> yes, precinct. <laughs> Uh, of NYC on August 29th, 1996. When she reported it, the police thought it was kind of funny and unbelievable, and they even laughed a little bit. Really professional. Seriously. They were up front with her and said, we can file a report about art theft, but there's really nothing else we can do to handle this. (laughs) Seriously? There's nothing? They told her that Ohio was out of their jurisdiction, but they referred her to the FBI. Maria called the FBI that same day and gave them all the same information. But despite her best efforts, nothing was ever done for this report. So the impact on Maria from this incident was life-altering. She lost all her passion for art. She was living in constant fear of what would happen. And she had gone from being a creative dreamer who was willing to do anything to follow her dreams to kind of a jaded and paranoid victim of abuse who no one would listen to. Hmm. And this kind of crippled her art career for a long time. Later on, Maria learned from Annie that at the night that they went to the theater to see 12 Monkeys, Jeffrey kept reaching out to hold Annie's hand. Annie really wasn't able to focus on the movie that night because she was trying to figure out why he was holding her hand. At the time, she figured it was maybe like a fatherly gesture, but he would also start rubbing her arm or her leg, and any time Maria would look over to talk to Jeffrey, he'd quickly pull his hand away. Yeah, so he knew he was being a slimeball here, and Annie could see that too. But sadly, Annie was afraid to say anything to her sister at the time because she didn't want to jeopardize her sister's career. Annie wrote about this in her journal when she got home. But as time went on, she started to wonder if she was just reading it the wrong way and decided that it was just better that she didn't say anything. Mm. And it's sad to see this process of justification for these perverted actions of an adult because she's taking the blame and guilt onto herself here and trying to make his actions okay in her head, you know? And this is why it's important for kids to be aware that if something like this happens to them, it's not their fault, and they can and should tell someone about it Mm -hmm. and not have to worry about being ashamed. Exactly. And now Annie is married and living in Texas, and she works as a psychologist. So that's pretty cool. That's super cool. I'm fascinated by psychologists, and I think a lot of people are. Mm Mm-hmm. Maria completely stopped painting in 1996 because she felt like her art had been violated by Epstein, and she wasn't able to pick up a brush again until 2018. That's a huge gap. Yeah. Like I said before, this whole event had a huge impact on her. I mean, uh, it just shows why this is so terrible, because... Some people will try to justify this and say, well, she didn't actually get raped. She didn't actually get hurt. But no one 
listened to her and she was hurt her her rights were violated and it made her stop painting for over 20 years Mm -hmm. and she still was attacked yeah she was still manipulated and used in ways that shouldn't have been well i said that weird but you know my gist you get the gist you guys know and she was physically attacked so she has her own story she has her own feelings we have no right to say oh well nothing happened to you Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So last year in 2019, Maria was dealing with another difficult trial in her life, and I know a few of our listeners can relate to this type of thing. Maria learned that she had a brain tumor growing inside of her head. She was undergoing treatment around the time that the stories of Epstein were all over the news. And to make things even worse for Maria, her and Annie were not able to seek any type of civil action against Epstein's estate for reparations because of the statute of Ugh, limitations. Stupid. The stupidest law. According to Ohio law, where Annie and Maria were abused, the criminal statute of limitations laws allow six years for most crimes with no limit for murder, while sex crimes, kidnapping, robbery, burglary, arson, and some other serious crimes have a 20-year statute of limitations. I will never never understand how a crime that directly harms another person can have a time limit on it. Mm-hmm. Even 20 years. Especially when Maria tried to report Jeffrey back in 1996. Wow, yes. That is a really good point. I mean, she called the NYPD for help and they just shrugged her off. And now that people are finally realizing that Epstein Epstein was a huge piece of crap and they're actually being believed, it's too late for her. Mm -hmm. So that just does not seem fair to me. Maria is saddened when she sees the guilt that other victims and survivors of Epstein feel for not speaking up sooner. But she remembers her own experience of speaking up and being ignored and feels that even if these girls would have spoken up sooner, no one would have listened. And part of the problem is that Epstein had his fingers in the pies of many powerful people and institutions. Epstein made large donations to many politicians and universities. And they total into the millions, so these were big donations. These donations helped Epstein create a facade. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, because I heard someone call it a facade. (laughs) This... Oh, last week when I was listening to something, Did I was like, really? that's not right. It's <laughs> okay. a facade. <laughs> okay. They helped him create a facade of credibility and honor while using the trust that he got from that to take advantage of young girls. And I know he got a lot of money from selling stocks in Leslie Wexner's businesses, but I also wonder how much of his money was from other rich people taking advantage of Epstein's services if he was trafficking young girls out to these rich, powerful people, they weren't getting that for free, you know? Mm -hmm. And he had those little cameras hidden all over his mansions, which he allegedly used to create blackmail against these people. So do you think he didn't use that blackmail to squeeze some money out of them? You know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Who who knows how dirty that money was that he donated to other powerful people and colleges while simultaneously bolstering his reputation and increasing his reach to take in more vulnerable girls. It's just vicious cycle. So, Rosie, do you want to talk about who Epstein did donate to? Sure. He made donations to prominent schools like MIT and Harvard. Big-time schools. In 2003, he'd given $6.5 million to Harvard, and that's just one donation. He's also donated to Democratic politicians like Clinton and George H.W. Bush. Maria feels that the money Epstein donated to these different places should be paid back to the victims of Epstein, who he likely used to make even more money off of. But that's likely never going to happen. Yeah, so that's Maria and Annie Farmer's story with Epstein. This man stole a huge part of Maria's life and ruined her blossoming career. And on top of that, he violated her. And what he did caused her to lose her passion. It's so sad. Can I just say, like, why do those schools even need donations? You know what I mean? That's a good point. Because tuition is super expensive. Like, 
Give it to Tartan High School. <laughs> so with all this, Maria's story is just one of many because of this man. And um, next week we're going to share more. And this will be the longest series we've ever done on one person. But I noticed that I heard about this case all the time last year. But everything I heard was about his charges and his death conspiracy theories. I really had to go digging to find these stories of his victims. So that's what we want to focus on here. And that's why we're not titling this series like Epstein Part 1, Part 2, Part 3, and so on. But we're going to spend each episode focusing on an individual or two that was victimized by this idiot. Mm -hmm. So do you have anything else to say before we get to the reviews? No, I'm, I'm super excited about this series. You did a really good job, Ryan. Oh, thank you. Well, do you want to read the first or the second review? The first. <laughs> All right. It's entitled, Obsessed. Five stars. says, okay, for all those taking on Ryan, go be a Karen somewhere else. <laughs> also, should we get more cat input? I'd be totally fine with it. I'm a dog walker, pet sitter, so I listen all day and laugh with you too. Punk walks around town via Apple Podcasts, United States, on the 29th of January. Wow, that was thorough. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, P Punk walks around town. I loved and that. So actually, the person who wrote this messaged us because I posted this to our story. Oh. So thank you, Meg. We yes. appreciate that. Um, the next review is entitled, You Guys Rock! Exclamation point. Um, <laughs> I says, rock! Rock! Sorry. I'm so sorry about that. Was Go that on. from that commercial? I, yeah. <laughs> that is Chris why. Rock and Rocky? <laughs> that is why I'm singing it. So it says, Rosie and Ryan, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to bring this podcast to your listeners. I know it's not easy. I have never listened to a podcast that was good enough to binge until I found yours. Wow. That's really nice. It continues, you guys choose the most interesting cases, and I love that you try to find stories that aren't already receiving a bunch of attention. It's kind of ironic that this is on the Epstein yeah, you're right. episode. But, um, For the right reasons, though. You have a great banter as you go through the case, and it makes the podcast so much more enjoyable. I saw some negative reviews saying that you should practice ahead of time or do the research together, but I completely disagree. The fact that your show is more informal is why I love it so much. It's so much more raw and real. Rosie asks a lot of questions that I'm thinking of myself, and I think that makes things interesting, even though I never have the answer. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, forget the haters and just keep doing what you're doing. Love it. From Crazy Cat Lady 27 on Apple Podcasts. That's lovely. United States of America. Five stars. We've gotten some really nice reviews lately, and I want to just say, keep it up. Yeah, we've had a good run of five-star reviews, and we would appreciate more. Yeah, we're going to have, we already have a couple for next week's pod, so it's cool. Well, but keep it one. up. Yeah. <laughs> we need another one for next week, so definitely go leave us a five-star review so you can hear it on our show, mm -hmm. if you're into that kind of thing. As far as cat news goes, we can give Meg a little something-something. There's not much interesting news on about our cats. <laughs> well, there. I think there's some interesting news. Zucchini, Zook for short, um, he has a limp. Mm, yes, that his is right paw. He's been walking with his right paw held up and kind of limping on his left leg. And we took him into the vet for this like a year ago, probably. Not. It was not even a year. And now he's not limping. I just saw him walk normal on it, actually. Yeah, but um, the vet could not find anything wrong with him. He thought maybe he has, like, cramps in his shoulder. But I think it's because, and you think this too, he's using our old wooden chest as a scratching post, and I think he's getting little slivers Which he's this. not supposed to. Pa. But look look at him right now. He's on all four legs. See? You're an enigma. So we don't know. We might bring him in again, but the doctor said there was nothing wrong with him. And I feel like he just got a little sliver or pulled something again. He's yeah. an old boy, so. But he's lively and but he doesn't shiver or pull back when we pull on his leg. Yeah, exactly. Like paw. we try to 
figure it out. Feel around that, and he never pulls back in pain. So, whoops, I just hit my mic. So, it's uh, a little weird, and it's sad because we're leaving for 10 days. But my brother won't watch him. Yeah, how's your brother with cats? (laughs) He likes Zook a lot. (laughs) He likes the cats. Uh, Another interesting tidbit is Brito lost his ball. I feel really bad about it. Yes. Oh, no. So, Wilson! (laughs) Trying to find it it for him. And Uh. Quesadilla is fat, orange, and sassy, living his best life. Mm -hmm. Yes. He's very sweet in the mornings. That's about it, as Uh. far as kittens. (laughs) Yeah, if you don't follow us on Instagram, we posted a picture of the cats before we left on our trip which oh yeah is them in our suitcase while we were packing being we were packing that's funny i don't remember we while rosie was packing (laughs) well i went through my entire dresser while we were packing you know i feel like i did something (laughs) anyway anyway (laughs) it doesn't really matter no if you want to see our three cats in our suitcase, go follow us on Instagram <laughs> at VOV Podcast. Uh-huh. And we're on Twitter at VOV Pod, even though I'm really inconsistent at using Twitter. Also, you can email us at VOV Podcast at gmail.com. What else is there? Oh, we have a P.O. Box. I think it's P.O. Box 1425 in oh, Hudson, Wisconsin, 54016. Mm-hmm. Yep. Is that right? 1425? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's on our Instagram. Yes, so if you really want to know what our P.O. Box number is, go look at our Instagram page. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I think that's about it. Please give us a five-star. We'd appreciate it. Also, check out our Patreon. I just put out an episode where I complain <laughs> about things. Yeah. So if you want to hear about that... <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to give him any kind of hint? No, just in case my so, bosses listen. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think that's a good enough hint. Yeah. Um, anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. We will talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs>